the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and project. Brothers, sisters, assalamu alaikum wa So we are going to recap very quickly where we left off in the last uh, lesson. And uh, inshallah we will continue to, so just to give a, a very quick overview. In previous lessons we established the, not only the infallibility of prophethood and prophets, but also the necessity of their infallibility. And we said that if the chain of transmission of the revelation is not infallible, then it defeats the purpose of divine wisdom from sending a revelation and prophet. And if the prophets or yeah, the prophets themselves or any component of that chain of transmission is not infallible, is not entirely reliable, then we cannot use it as our safe means to accessing revelation or divine intervention in human affairs. Once we did that, uh, and these were kind of the general principles, we saw that someone could come back and say, well, while we understand the general arguments, the general arguments are valid uh, at a high level, once we get into the specifics of the lives of this or that prophet, we may encounter in the scriptures uh, some instances where it seems, when someone is looking at them, uh, let's say superficially or face value, it looks like there's a contradiction between those instances and what we said so far about infallibility. So the idea from this lesson is that we go through some of these most, let's say the more popular uh, of these objections and give a high level answer to them. As we said, you know, entire volumes have been written about this topic related specifically to the infallibility of specific particular prophets. Um, so there's no way for us to cover the entire uh, discussion about any of them in, in a few minutes here. Um, if we wanted to spend a little bit more time, then either we would do it through uh, Quranic commentary. So we would go through the verses of the Quran that speak about this or that prophet, put all the verses together, and then uh, go back to all the commentators and see what they have said about them and reach a conclusion. Or we could look at it from the point of view of the lives of the prophets themselves. So just kind of a more historical or biographical study of the lives of every prophet. And that would include the specific chapters that we're mentioning in this lesson. So here, I mean, a lot of these are completely out of context. We're going basically after verses of the Quran where the, there's a word that may uh, lead to a little bit of confusion, misunderstanding, misinterpretation of the Quran because there's a verb or a word or a, a noun, a basic, basically a term that may lead to confusion. And so this is what we're doing here. And if you remember when we started the series, we said that we called it general prophethood, General prophethood basically means that which applies to all prophethood, all prophets. Which is different from what applies to every specific prophet. So what you usually study under general prophethood is things that apply to everyone. They're the universal rules related to all of prophethood, all of revelation and those carrying it. That's why it's called the Nubu Al-Am, general prophethood. 
And when you want to talk about this or that prophet, you want to talk about Adam you want to talk about Yusuf, you want to talk about the prophet Muhammad sallallahu Now you're talking about al khasa. You're talking about specific or a particular or individual prophethood. And then you would go into the life of that prophet and you see what's specific to that prophet. So in a way, this lesson is really should really be placed under more specific or particular prophethood and not general prophethood. But I think it was placed there just to uh, kind of complete the discussion about infallibility because these, as we said, are well-known objections uh, that the, I think, author did not want to leave hanging in the minds of people who may be asking about them in general. So he wanted to address them even though it's a very, you know, quick overview type of uh, treatment. He's not going in, in depth in, in any of these. So as we said, the lesson is structured uh, into 10 objections and answers, or 10 questions and answers. Uh, and I believe that we covered three of them. And actually the third one also covers the fourth, but we'll do a kind of a, a couple of minute recap on each one of them, and then we'll continue where, where we left off. So the first objection had to do with this idea of reward or merit of profits. If infallibility is a divine grace, if it's bestowed upon the prophets, if it's granted to them, then why do they deserve any merit or any reward for any of the actions they do? And the answer to that, that's generally the objection, and the answer to that is, no matter how we explained prophethood until now, or infallibility of prophethood until now, there's nothing that we have said that should lead someone to think that there is a compulsion. There's never a necessity to act in a certain way, or to put it in a negative uh, way, or in a negative voice, uh, they never lose the ability to exercise their free will. And the key is there. For me to receive or not receive reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the entire thing rests on the idea of my free will. If I have the freedom of choice to act as I wish, then I'm fully responsible for that action. To the extent that I have freedom of choice, to the extent that my action is voluntary, that I deserve punishment or I deserve reward. And there's nothing that we have said until now about the infallibility of prophethood, of prophets, that should lead someone to think that they're losing their ability to make a free choice. Okay, so no matter how we explain prophethood, we said it's additional knowledge, the feeling that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is present at all times, or their attachment and love to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and there's an additional divine grace. So if we talk about the intentional aspect of their lives, where they are in control fully, for those, it's, it's all dependent on, do they have a freedom of choice? Are their actions voluntary or not? Did we say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is doing anything to limit their freedom of choice? If that is not taking place, then they deserve reward and punishment just like everybody else. And for that aspect of their lives, which we said it's a divine grace, it's above and beyond what any human being controls. We said this specifically applies to them because we said their infallibility starts from the moment they're born. And it goes beyond uh, their knowingly not doing any, not committing any sins. We're saying there's no forgetfulness, there are no accidental mistakes. Or, so how, does that, how is that secured? That's secured through the divine grace, as we said. Okay, and we'll talk a little bit more about that towards the end of the series, why that needs to be the case. Although we already touched on it a few times. 
All that to say, for that component, well, that applies to our lives too. We have some of that too. Every human being has a component of their lives where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created circumstances and managed the affairs of their world, and we're not responsible for that. That's beyond our, I should get no punishment, no reward for that component that I have no voluntary action in. Yeah. So if I want to quickly ask you a question. Yeah. I listened to your lecture yeah. last week. Abdullah asked you the question about whether they can make a mistake or not. And I was, you said they couldn't make a mistake. They can, but they don't. They can, but they That's don't. That's our belief. Yeah. And does that also, does that rule only apply for like religious issues or no. also for like putting too much sugar in the tea or having a math equation wrong? Is it also, so that, uh, do you also not make mistakes outside of faith? We believe that they don't. And I thought the question was related to that. Okay, okay. Uh, so maybe some components, some, some items, some issues may be related to faith. Uh, generally speaking, from our perspective, superficially, we may say there are things outside of faith or not directly relevant to their revelation mm -hmm. and the faith. But we believe that they don't make those mistakes either. And this is the divine grace. So, and this requires a, a completely separate topic. Uh, I think the lives and the, as individuals, they need to be studied more and followed less. Because one, maybe one way to look at them is to just consider them normal people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen for this. But another way to look at them is to recognize that they're not normal people. There are, they are exceptional people in every aspect, every term, every dimension in their lives especially their intelligence. That's a very important ingredient. And that's why we said it's not random. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not choosing these people randomly. They're not of average. No prophet or imam will ever be of, you know, average intelligence and they're given infallibility. Not at all. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is choosing from among all of the humanity, those people who have the most exceptional skills and giving them his mission to communicate to the people. Okay, so there are a lot of these you know, mistakes that we talk about. Normal people with these exceptional traits usually don't make them either. Okay, but if we want to take it one level beyond, we say in their case, no, there, there is a religious dimension to everything they do. Because that opens the door to, you know, jabbing. <laughs> that opens the door to, can we follow them here or not? If they made a mistake here, then they may have made a mistake elsewhere too, including in Revelation and in religion. If they forget something, if they confuse two things, if they that opens the door. That's why we say, like in our belief, and it is not this is not unanimous in, in all of the, the Muslim community and throughout the centuries. But in our belief and the manner in which uh, we're teaching it, yeah, we're saying that they're infallible in every aspect and every dimension, from birth till death, in revelation and outside of revelation. Okay. Um, Okay, so that was the first objection. The second objection is we find in the words of the Imams and the Prophet many instances where they seem to be recognizing, admitting openly that they have made mistakes and they're asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or committed sins and they're asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive them. So how can we come back and say they have never committed any sins? And we gave the you know, high level answer and we said if we understand everything we've said about these people until now, we have to understand that they do not hold themselves to the same standards as they hold everybody else, or everybody else holds themselves. They see themselves as 
having a lot more duty and a lot more responsibility towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The presence, the never being distracted from the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, being fully in control, being fully disciplined at all times of every aspect, every dimension of their being. So the moment there's any distraction to that, then they consider that a grave sin. And they're asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgiveness for that shortcoming in their, from their point of view, in their worldview, which certainly does not amount to a sin for anyone else. But in their dictionary, their way of seeing the world, that is a shortcoming. That requires asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness. This is a general uh, answer we gave to that second objection. And then we added, I think, nine or ten other theories or answers, possible answers. This is a question that uh, has been addressed again and again by so many scholars throughout the centuries. So we gave a quick overview of uh, multiple different answers that can be given to this one. So go back and uh, review the last lesson if you need to. The third objection. We said in the previous lessons when we talked about infallibility in the scriptural proofs for infallibility that there are verses in the Holy Quran talking about the effects of Satan, of the devil, on people. And we said that those there's a limit, a limitation to what the devil can do once it reaches the prophets. And this is where we distinguish between the terms mukhlas and mukhlas in the Quran. And we said mukhlas basically means someone who seeks perfection, who seeks to get sincerity. Whereas mukhlas is someone in the passive tone, someone who has been made sincere and pure. So if we're saying the Holy Quran says, and Iblis himself, Satan himself recognizes that he is limited when he says, I'm going to deceive or tempt or seduce all of humanity except those who are mukhlas, he is openly stating that there's a limitation then how come do we find in other verses of the Qur'an that he seems to have an effect in their lives? He can play a certain role. There are some of his activities that seem to have a direct role in their lives. And in short, so we looked at three, uh, three different verses, one of them having to do with Adam salam, the second Prophet Ayyub salam, and the third Prophets in general. And we said when we look at all of these verses, none of them are implying or stating that the activity of Satan is leading any of the prophets to be deceived and in the sense of ever thinking of committing a sin or committing a sin. Yes, Satan does have a certain activity, he plays a role, but that role in the case of those prophets has nothing to do with sinning. He is creating conditions where those prophets, for instance, may have a very difficult life. Those prophets are unable to play their prophetic mission in their lives as they want to. Which is completely different from saying that he is deceiving them and they're thinking of sinning or they have sinned. And then specifically we said about Adam and we're going to, maybe Adam and we can leave it for the fourth objection because that's all it is, it's about Adam and so we're going to come back to it. For Ayyub we said there is nowhere where the devil has impacted his life in the sense that he wants to sin or he has sinned. What he has done is that he's created conditions where the life of Prophet Ayyub is extremely difficult. He's being put in through one test after another. 
And if we go back to the narrations we see after every test, Ayyub is asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for help, but in reality, he is gaining more faith. He's being more, he's reaching a higher level of proximity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which was the entire point. Satan said if his life became more difficult, he would lose faith. We have to put him to the test. So he, would, he was put to the test. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is showing Satan how this, this man, this one of my servants is actually this attached to me. That the more I put him through these tests and these tribulations, the more he increases in faith. It's not that he decreases or he thinks of committing sins. So here the confusion again is this word because Ayyub salam in the Quran says, مَسَّنِيَ الشَّيْطَانِ So someone may think Satan has touched me, but the reality is no. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on behalf of Ayyub salam, he's saying he has afflicted, he has created conditions where I am afflicted with being exhausted in my life, being tired, this is draining my... His life basically turned, as we said, in a living hell. Every dimension, every aspect of his life was being completely wiped out. His health, his family, his wealth, and so on and so forth. So at some point, Ayyub salam starts asking for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's protection and support, which has nothing to do with saying that he committed any sins. There's no sinning here. Okay, so again, it's a matter of how do you interpret these the words. And as for the general verse which says that every prophet has a desire and yet Satan throws something into the desire. Okay, in the desire of these prophets. So someone may think, what is he throwing? And then there's all sorts of fabrications here. Sometimes they say that he's able to kind of create hallucinations and dupe them and make it difficult for them to recognize what's really being revealed to them versus what's satanic. And, you know, just um, I'm intentionally using these words. This is the source of the ideas of satanic verses, for instance. This is where it comes from. These fabricated narrations or stories where, you know, Satan has an ability to uh, deceive the person receiving the revelation. So we've already talked about that because of the type of knowledge that they receive. It's impossible to deceive them. It's an existential, existentially present knowledge. It's not a theoretical acquired knowledge, as, as we explained. So in these cases, then, what is this throwing into the desire that Satan is doing to the prophets? And in short, we said, he creates obstacles to their prophetic mission. So the desire of the prophets is to create a community, a humanity of guided people. Every time they will and intend to do something, to act, their intent is to create that kind of world, a world of justice, a world of guided people. And the role of Satan is to come and play his role and create obstacles and try to make them not reach those, those aims, those ends. This does not mean that the prophets themselves are thinning, think, thinking of sinning or committing sins. It has nothing to do with that. Okay? So this was the third. Now the fourth objection, <clears throat> we already talked about it uh, in the last lesson, but very quick recap. And the way, you know, uh, Funny, but that's the way it's uh, worded in the book. So now we're talking specifically about Adam السلام, and again, it's the terminology used in the Quran. There's disobedience and there's forgetfulness. So how does it apply to Adam And very quickly, not to be too repetitive, we said, first of all, the real answer is there was never a legislative command to Adam السلام, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for him to disobey. 
We said commands, if we want to use that word, that terminology, can be split into different categories of two types. Some of them are referred to as advisory, amr, uh, irshadi, and some of them are called, let's say, legislative, or something that you have to execute, yeah? they're prescribed. Okay, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands you, orders you in the sense that everybody understands, and those we call legislative. Amr, mawlawi. So you have a mawla, you have a master who orders you to do something. Religious laws are all mawlawi. They come from a master to a servant. If someone tells you, if you start running, you're going to get tired. There is no amr mawlawi. There is no legislative command here not to run. I'm explaining to you that if you do a certain activity, there's going to be a consequence. There's a cause and effect relationship and I'm explaining it to you. I may be doing it in a loving tone and I'm providing good counsel, I'm giving you advice. The doctor says if you keep eating these sweets, you may end up being a diabetic. There is no command that you can break or not break, a rule, a law that you have to follow. There's advice that you're receiving. If you do this, this is going to be the outcome. This is what was given to Adam Why do they say that? So this is part one of the answer. Part two of the answer related to it is because Adam did not live in our world in that instance. At that time when the Quran refers to his existence and his being as being in the Jannah, this is a completely different world. Where religion, religious prescriptions, religious uh, legislation, command, orders do not apply there. And in fact, although this is not explained, if you go back in the Quran and you read, especially in Surah Al-Baqarah and elsewhere, this is very clear. First of all, and we hinted to that a little bit, we said Adam السلام, was clearly created for earth. What? So he was never created for the garden. Allah says, I am creating, I am making on earth a Khalifa, a representative for him. That's one. And two, it's only after Adam السلام, was sent to earth, after the episode in the garden, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells him, the relationship between you and Satan is now one of enmity. You, you two are enemies to each other. You will always be enemies to each other. That's one. And now you will receive my guidance. So whoever follows my guidance, there is no fear or sadness for him. And as for those who want to disbelieve in this guidance, ah, now we see, now we have religion. Now we have legislation that is sent and given to Adam after he comes to earth. After Allah says, All of you leave, go down to earth. So this is now a world of legislation, a world of religion. Okay? Those two goes together. Yeah. It's related. It's related. When uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he asks the angels to bow before Adam, they ask why, and he says, because I taught him the names, so Nabi Adam is able to recite the names. Yeah. And the angels reply to Allah saying, we only know what you teach us. Yeah. Okay, but in the same light, Nabi Adam was also the one taught by Allah. Yeah. So you see what I'm trying to ask? So angels are saying, well, we only know what you taught us. Mm. And here's Nabi Adam. Allah taught him. Yeah. So what? So then, why would Allah ask them to 
do sujood towards Adam. Because the he angels would, understood right away that they were basically undeserving of that knowledge, and he was. Which shows them their rank. Okay. So he is of a higher rank than they are. Because Allah decided to teach him these names rather than teach the angels these names. Yeah. That's one answer. There's other answers. But that's a very quick answer. Yeah, that's a good answer. Good answer. Yeah. There's another answer that could be, we only know that which you taught us. And if you haven't tell, told us, then how do we know? It's not in reference to this knowledge. It's in reference to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when He told them, Inni a'lamu ma la ta'lamun. I know that which you do not know. Mm. And then they say, in part, it's because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was telling them, I know that amongst you, there is one who is not going to prostrate and who is not a true believer. And he is not really submitted. But this can only come through, come forth, if I put you all to the test. Without the test, we'll never know. So I'm going to put you to the test. And then when the episode unfolds, then you see one of them refuses to bow down. And then the angels are like, oh, okay, so there's more here. Mm -hmm. So one part of it is they start understanding the rank of Adam salam, And another one, they also realize that this one amongst them who has been with them for thousands of years according to the narrations well suddenly apparently he was not a believer like they are he is not fully submitted like they are which is satan so it required that test too and say answering this last week you also said nabi adam a part of his mission was to come down to earth to be a khalifa in mm -hmm. the land yeah but then it made me think well maybe it wasn't someone could ask wasn't iblis's role to also then be iblis to be, wasn't his role in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's knowledge in Allah's eternal knowledge he knew that things have to unfold through cause and effect right and so Iblis became the cause but God didn't tell Iblis that no, I'm not. making you forever but he told Adam I'm making you forever no Adam was also not told no, but he, said he created the angels when he told the angels, I'm going to create oh, Adam, and I'm yeah. going to make a, yeah. a vicegerent, a khalifa on earth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is openly, right up from the beginning, saying, this vicegerent is going to be on earth. Mm -hmm. Somehow, some way, this vicegerent is going to have to end up on earth. Mm -hmm. Iblis did not have to be the one who causes this. Maybe, maybe there's this 10 the or a thousand happens, or a million different it, possibilities for so Adam to have landed on earth, okay. not so, through Iblis, but Ibli, Iblis played that role. So Iblis could have done sujood and some other way, Adam would have come to the earth eventually. And Iblis could be still one of the great worshippers yes. of Allah. Okay. Yeah. He just chose to be the opposite. Isn't according to Sayyid Al-Tawai saying that Adam chose to go to the tree? In what sense? Like he chose, he wanted to go to earth. Not like he was um, tricked. tricked. No, he was tricked. He was, he was tricked right? even in that. Uh, even in Tafsir Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because uh, according to Sayyid Qutbah, basically it's, uh, the story is metaphorical. Yeah, he was and saying that the love of Adam, Adam showing his love for Allah. So the entire story is a metaphor to explain to us human beings, oh, all human metaphor, beings, metaphor, didn't oh. we don't know if it really happened or it happened this way or not, but that's irrelevant. Mm. The story to us is a metaphor to explain to us our relationship with the world and our relationship with the devil. If this does not happen, then why are we hardwired the way we are? Okay. This is our fitrah is being explained to us through that story. Mm. 
Anyways, that requires a, yeah, we have to go through, yeah, yeah, that requires an extensive study. Fifth objection. So here we, basically the objection in short is, there are some verses of the Quran that seem to indicate that some of our prophets lie. So how can lying be compatible with infallibility? The first verse is, Prophet Ibrahim السلام, when he says, Inni saqeen, I am sick. Mm-hmm. So this happened when he knew that the people that he lives with are about to leave. And he wants to stay behind because he wants to do something. He wants to destroy the idols. So he doesn't want to leave with everyone. So he tells them, Inni saqeen, I'm sick. They leave and he goes and destroys the idols. Then they come back and they ask who did it. They're told there's someone by the name of Ibrahim who did it. They bring him. And they told him, who did this? And he answers them, according to the Quran, uh, So one way to understand it is, no or nay, I did not do it, basically, that's the implied. The one who did it, he says, no, the one who did it is the great one among them, among the idols. Go ask him, go ask them if you find that they have any speech, if they will speak to you. Okay, so those two verses kind of go together because they're part of the same story. Another verse of the Quran, for instance, that could be mentioned here is Prophet Yusuf when he tried to get his brother out of the other brothers, the brother that he thought they're gonna make do another injustice towards. So he wanted to pull him out from them and teach them a lesson so his brothers, and the story is well known, when they were, he was young, they threw him in a water well, and he was carried, and years and years later, after all the injustices and the jailing and all the uh, difficulties and tribulations and tests that he goes through, he becomes basically the governor, the minister or governor, vizier, responsible for the granaries and the, 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 the storage of food for that country, and a very powerful position of that time. And he recognizes his brothers when they come. They're in a poor state. They really need to get as much food as they can to go back to their families. And he finds, he creates a situation where he extracts his brother out of them. And the situation he creates is basically he takes his cup, the cup that is used by the king, the cup that is used to measure the amount of food or grains that everybody gets, which they say it's made of gold or made of, it's, it's full of jewelry, it's very prestigious. And he puts it in his brother's items. And then there's a general call that this caravan cannot leave, they have stolen. And in the laws of that country, whoever steals, they become the servant, they're owned. You own the person who steals from you. So he says, if we find it in the luggage and the items of any of you, then we're going to take them. And they go through their items and they find it in the items of his brother. And he takes them. And the entire verse is about when it is said, in the verse, it is said, it doesn't say Yusuf says, This group, this caravan, you are thieves. You have stolen. Okay? So how can Prophet Yusuf say you have stolen when they have not stolen? So these are the objections. 
general answer for all of these is the technical term that is used in Arabic is tawriya. Tawriya basically means, and you'll find it in Arabic in general and specifically in theology or religious texts, basically means there's a double meaning, double entendre, as they say. You intend one meaning, but you say it in a way to lead your the person listening to you to go to the other meaning. So if we apply this general rule here, so what did Ibrahim say? So in a lot of these, if we have that in mind, this is all derived from the general rules we established. We said none of this can be sins. If we agree with the general idea that there cannot be sins, then we have to come up with an interpretation that keeps that theory coherent, right? And then we can add a lot more detail if we go through the narrations. So Ibrahim when he says, I am sick, I'm not going to follow you because I am sick. Okay, what does he mean? So one possibility is Ibrahim and we have that in our narrations, he's saying, I'm sick and tired and exhausted and drained from you and your false beliefs. I do not want to follow you. But they will understand from that as I am physically ill and sick and I'm staying behind. Another interpretation to Sa'im could also mean in Arabic, and the Imams say that, it basically means I'm dying. To be drained or ill to the point of dying. And he means in the future. That's also in the narrations. And we also have another narration that says, and this is not all in the book, of course, but I'm adding them. We have narrations that say that he said that once the story of Imam Hussein was explained to him. And he says that he felt exhausted and drained to the point of saying, Okay? Putting that last one aside, if we take the first two, we can see how Ibrahim is telling them, I'm going to stay behind for either or. I'm so sick, exhausted, tired of you and your beliefs. And they would understand from that that I am actually ill, sick, and staying behind. The second verse is, It's their chief, the, the great idol, the great statue among them, the big one, where he went, he didn't destroy it, that's the one he left intact, and he attached the axe on his neck around it. So that when they came, he's basically teaching them a lesson. He's telling them, go ask. You're saying that you worship these, and you're asking me, well, can't you see that the axe is around his neck? So go ask him and tell me if they'll speak to you. And if they don't speak to you, then how do you worship them? They're incapable of anything, including speech. So here in our narrations, we have the Imam saying there's an if. The if is, If they are going to talk back to you, to speak, if they have speech, then yeah, they did it. But they, they can't speak, which means they didn't do it, which means your worship is... False. You're mistaken in your worship. Okay? And of course, there's another interpretation. I'm not going to go into it here. But basically, it's how the verses, there are part of, parts of it, part of the wording that can go beyond, before or after. It changes the meaning. So that's good. So I have a question on this one. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if it's related to this, but what if they answered back, let's say, because isn't this objection that Nabi Ibrahim did? Can they do it against him too? Like let's say, oh, your God did this. Let him tell us that he didn't. And how do you worship him if he doesn't speak to? Yeah, so Chala, we're going to explain that okay. in the next part, which is the miracles. 
Okay. So, so this is where this is the divine reply. Okay. It's going to come through the miracles. The challenge of the miracles. Tell me, your son, totally. instead paying extra attention, he might use this against you in the future. Possible. I have to I be really careful. Use it. <laughs> okay. And then, if we go to the story of Prophet Yusuf, alayhi uh, first of all, and this is not mentioned, and I find it surprising that it's not mentioned a lot as a response here. Nowhere in the verse does it say that Yusuf is the one who said, you have lied. It doesn't say Yusuf said. It was called, there was a loud call, this caravan cannot leave, you are thieves. Yusuf created conditions so that this would happen. But it doesn't say he actually said it, one. And two, again, if we go into the narrations, we are told the uh, we have some of our imams that basically tell us that Yusuf alayhi salam meant and if, if he is the one who has said it then what he meant alayhi salam was you have stolen Yusuf from his father you are thieves you did steal you did steal you stole Yusuf from his father okay so you see the double meaning here and there is no lie total lie Objection six. This one specifically about Musa alayhi salam, and again because the verse, especially in Arabic, uses the terms They have a sin if we want to use our terminology, and the problem is here with the translation. That's one one verse, and the other verse he says when he's going back and forth. Maybe I should give just a little bit of context. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks Musa alayhi salam to go talk to Pharaoh, he says what he says until he reaches this argument. And he says, basically, maybe I shouldn't be the one doing this, carrying your message to Pharaoh, because, because, and because they have a crime that they hold against me. That's one. And two, when he is the back and forth that he has with Pharaoh, once he does go to Pharaoh and talk to him, at some point, Pharaoh says, and then you did, you know, you know what you did, what you did. And then he answers, Musa I was misguided. The easiest translation is misguided, right? So if we put these two together, when he talks to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, they have a sin against me. And when he talks to Pharaoh, he says, I was misguided. So how is that compatible with infallibility? So first of all, in that story, the reference, the crime or the sin that he's referring to is there were two people, one of his people and one not of his people, of the cops. And they were in a fight. And the one from his people called Musa salam to come help him. Musa came and hit the other man and the other man died. So Musa salam saw that that man died. It was not intentional. He did not try to kill him, but that man died. That is the crime or the sin being referred to in the first verse. When Musa salam tells Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they have a sin against him. When he says, when he tells uh, Fir'aun, when he tells him, and I was misguided, it's a reference to that. One way to interpret this, one way to understand this, is to say 
This is for argument's sake. Let's agree that I was misguided. So I left after I did what you say I did. I left, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guided me. So I came back. This does not necessarily mean that Musa salam is openly saying I was misguided. It's for argument's sake. It's a rhetorical device. Let, let's not spend more time on that. Let's assume that I was really misguided. There was a misguidance here. I'll, I'll give you that, okay? So that I don't dwell on that point. My point now is to get you to do what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is asking you to do, okay? So that's the misguidance part. If we go in the narrations, there's also an additional part here that is added in the narrations. The misguided means, again, going back to, to Tawriya, it means that I was lost. He's not Balin in the sense that I am misguided, that I was actually physically lost in the city. This happened while I was lost. I'm a, I'm a stranger here, I'm a foreigner. I'm not sure what's happening. And you know, I came, I saw two people, I did what I did, and you know, don't use that against me. Okay? That's a second interpretation depending on narrations that we can use. So if we go back to the cry, what is he meaning? Is he really saying that I have done a sin? No, and the verse is very clear. The verse is saying they have a sin or a crime that they want to hold against. He's not saying I committed any sins. He's saying they have something that they want to hold against me. And again, it's not that I'm afraid for myself. It's, is this, am I really the best person for your prophetic mission when they already have something against me, which is I have killed someone? Is there sin here? No, there is no sin. Okay, so that's the answer to both of these. Objection 7. Objection 7 is a number of verses in the Quran, all of them amounting to the same thing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in multiple verses of the Quran talking to the Holy Prophet, he tells him, and do not doubt. Okay, so here's one of the verses. And if thou art in doubt concerning that which we revealed to you, then ask those who have been reading the book. The truth has indeed come to you from your Lord, so do not be of those in doubt. This always comes back in six or seven different verses of the Quran. So if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ordering the Prophet, commanding the Prophet not to be of those who doubt, obviously the Prophet doubts, and this is a sin. How can you doubt your own revelation? How can you doubt your belief? The quick answer here is the Prophet is not in doubt. And we have, in fact, narrations where when this verse was revealed, we are told the Holy Prophet said, there is no doubt and I will never doubt. He says that, okay? That's one part. Part two is, this is a rhetorical device and it's well known amongst the Arabs that they, they refer to it and we even have a narration from the Holy Prophet who says the Quran was revealed on this based on this principle. It's a rhetorical device that basically means I talk to you but I want someone else to listen. So while the Quran seems to be addressing the Prophet the Quran is really talking to everybody else here and tells them do not doubt. And the easy answer to this is in a way, to keep it short, in a way it's as though the verses are saying there is no doubt there is no place for anyone to doubt here. It's not telling the Holy Prophet, do not be of those who doubt. 
Yeah, you and everybody else do not doubt, but it's not implying that the Prophet had any doubt and the Quran is trying to warn him against doubting. There's none of that in, the, in these verses. Okay, so inshallah that's that's the, the general principle in, in Arabic. Okay, there's a whole story behind it where we're not gonna get into it. So there's a figure of speech. The intent is for everybody else not to have doubt, although the Quran seems to be talking to the Holy Prophet. Eighth objection. There are verses in the Quran that seem to clearly say that the Holy Prophet had sins. In Surah Al-Fatih, in the second verse, it says that Allah may forgive you of your sins. That Allah may forgive you of your sins, the early ones and the later ones. And that he may perfect his favor upon you and may guide you on a straight path. So what sins are those? If the Prophet is infallible, why is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgiving him his early sins and his later sins? Okay? Here again, it's how are we using the terminology? The problem is if you don't know how the Arabs use those words, it's very easy. You fall on the problem, the mistake of thinking. When the Quran, every time he says them, he means sin in the technical sense that we believe. The key in this verse, the key in this verse is actually reading the verse right before it. And this is very important in the Quran. You can't just take specific words or a part of a verse or a verse on its own and not looking at the bigger context. We said this is the second verse in Surah Al-Fatih. What's the first verse? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, inna fatahna laka fathan mubina. This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala telling the Prophet, we have certainly granted you a great victory. What's the victory? The victory is when the, towards the very end of the mission of the Prophet, when he entered victorious in Mecca. After this 22 years or more of fighting and wars with these pagan Arabs, the Holy Prophet is now going back to Mecca, victorious. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, this is, we have granted you, we have bestowed upon you a great victory. The next verse, لِيَغْفِرَ لَكَ اللَّهُ مَا تَقَدَّمْ So that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives the early ones of your sins and the ones you did later. So which sins are those? Well, the key is in the first verse. If the verse is talking about sins, in the sense that we understand them, what does it have to do with becoming victorious over Mecca? What's the relationship? But if we go back to the way the Arabs used those, that terminology, then here, the same thing as Musa السلام, when he said, There is a crime they're holding against me. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Prophet that you have done so many crimes in the eyes of these people against them. And what are the crimes? He destroyed their idols. He said that there is only one true God, not the 360 statues that they have around the Kaaba. And we have multiple verses in the Quran that say that. That they consider that the greatest, most strange, bewildering thing that he's saying, you know, there are no other divinities except Allah. He's calling on to the, uh, the, the worship of the one God. That is such a strange thing as we have in multiple times in the Quran. This is a great sin. So throughout all those years, the Arabs had something to hold against the Prophet. One, he went against what they hold most sacred and he destroyed it, and that's the biggest sin. And two, all the wars and all the killing back and forth. Defensive or not, there is wars, there is blood. You are the leader that resulted in the killing of people from my tribe, you must be killed. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made the circumstances unfold in a certain way so as to make the Holy Prophet victorious over Mecca at the end. Which means what? Which means that he became basically the sovereign, the king, the ruler over Medina and Mecca. So every crime that was held against him before no longer can no longer be used against him. So all the previous killing and the wars and the destruction of the statues, the idols, these are the crimes. And then, of course, we can add to that in Arabic, the word ghafara, what does it mean when the Quran says, لِيَغْفِرَ لَكَ اللَّهِ basically means conceal. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to conceal the crimes that were held against you. The ones that you did at the beginning of your mission and the ones that you have done recently against those people. So that no one can use against anything against you anymore, even your worst enemies, because we've just made you victorious over it. And this is the link between the second verse and the one before it, which is, The first verse of Surah Al-Fatiha. The ninth objection. This one also requires a little bit of uh, explanation. I don't think we have too much time to go into the details. There's a very famous story in Surah Al-Ahzab where the Holy Prophet is told in the story, uh, and you fear the people, but it is more fitting that you should fear Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala. And so some people want to take that and use it against the Prophet saying, see, the Prophet is more fearful of the people than Allah, which is not befitting of a Prophet, much less of you, your Prophet, who is supposed to be the holiest of the Prophets, and so on and so forth. In short, the story is that the Arabs, the pagan Arabs, had a custom where if you adopt a son and your son marries someone and then they divorce them, it becomes illicit for you to marry that person. So these were the customs, and I mean, there are. This is this is really deserving a really good topic, where we would study, we would analyze the lives of the pagan Arabs before Islam. And then we see how Islam kept things and got rid of things. And in certain cases, it's very black and white. They were killing their daughters the moment they were born. Islam comes and says, this is forbidden, end of story. But in other instances, it's a little bit more nuanced. Either the prohibition or the legislation that came, came gradually, or there are nuances in it. It keeps apart and it lets go of a part. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to say that if you have a biological son and they marry someone and then they divorce them as the father-in-law or ex-father-in-law, you are not allowed to marry that person eternally, permanently. But if this is not your adopted son, if this is not your biological son, this is only your adopted son, you may marry them. Okay, and we're not going to get it. There's a sociological reason for that. This basically closes the door to another possibility of marriages. And in that context, they were required. In that world that they lived in, there were way too many women for the men. Okay? So, the Quran, what is it saying here? It's saying his adoptive son, the Holy Prophet, married someone. And then he came to the Prophet in a 
story with different interpretations that I don't have time to get into right now. And he told the Prophet, I want to release this woman from my from this marriage. I want to divorce her. And the Holy Prophet is now in the situation where is he going to marry this woman or not? Why is this a special case? Because the Holy Prophet is not marrying this woman randomly. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had asked the Prophet to marry this woman to break the custom himself so that people actually follow. Because if he doesn't do it himself, they will not follow. So the Holy Prophet here is in a situation where it looks like he's fearing the people. What are the people going to say? Reality is, the Holy Prophet is not really concerned about himself. The Prophet is concerned about the mission. What are people going to say about Islam? What are people, are people going to remain Muslims if I do this or not? Is this one of those customs that are so deeply ingrained that will make people leave the religion? This is the main purpose and the main preoccupation of the Prophet. And no one can turn that into a sin against the Prophet. So this is more an instruction from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. On the one side, it shows us how the Prophet was strategic and careful and analytical. When he does something, he wants to time it right, he wants to do it right. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes in this case and tells him, don't fear the people. Do as you were told. You were told to marry this woman, marry this woman. If we go into the narrations, there is one additional layer that is sometimes added, which is the Holy Prophet knew from way before when this man was married to Zainab bin Jash, when Zayd, the adoptive son of the Prophet, was married to Zainab bin Jash, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala informed the Prophet that she was one of his wives in heaven when she was still married. So the Prophet knew. In the, in the verses it says, Allah Taala is going to make manifest what is hidden in your heart. We've already told you and this is how things are going to unfold. Okay? That's one part. The second part is, in the chapter of Al-Ahzab, chapter 33, and in general, and two verses specifically right after the story, this is a long verse, and then two verses later, you see the Quran comes back and talks in general about prophets. This is one instance, and there are many others, and I would invite you to go back and read Surah Al-Hazab, see how many instances there is a mention of the Holy Prophet, and in what terms, in what tone does Allah Subh'anaHu Wa talk about the Holy Prophet in Surah Al-Hazab. Right from the beginning when he tells him, and we have taken a a, a strongly binding covenant from you and Nuh and Ibrahim and Musa and Isa alayhi salam. And then he comes back, Ayat al-Taghir, the verse of purification in verse 33. And he comes back, the verses, Ya ayyuh rasul, inna arsalnaka shahida wa bashira wa nadira, wa da'iyan illallahi bi'idnihi wa siraja munira, you are a lantern to the people, you are the guide to the people, and so on. These are all verses that are praising the Holy Prophet and showing his rank and merit and status. There's no blame or reprimand in, in these verses at all. So they cannot be twisted around. That's why I'm saying go back and see the context. Two verses later, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about prophets. And this is, don't forget, in a context where people are trying to use any excuse they can against a prophet. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes back and he talks in general. And of course, here the meaning is about this prophet specifically. So. 
and I always add this, to me the tone is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes to the defense of the Holy Prophet in the Quran, throughout the Quran. And the, here the verse, verse 39, two verses later, it says, Those who communicate the messages of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of their Lord, and they fear Him, and they do not fear anyone except Allah. So don't you come back and say, oh, the Holy Prophet was fearful of the people. These are prophets in general, and in our belief, and the Holy Quran says, and the greatest one amongst them is Muhammad. So do not think that he is of those who is more fearful, more fearful of the people than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, this is the ninth. Let's finish with the tenth objection very quickly. We have verses in the Quran that seem to be blaming. They have a uh, a tone of blame towards the Holy Prophet. One of those verses says, May Allah forgive you. Why did you grant them leave? Okay, and another verse, O Prophet, why do you forbid upon yourself that which Allah has made lawful to you, seeking to please your wives? So there are people who take these verses and they say, See, the Quran is blaming the Prophet. It's, it's reprimanding the Prophet. Tell him, Don't do this. This is a mistake. This is a Okay, so that's one way to read them. And it's a completely mistaken way of reading these verses. The proper way of understanding and reading these verses is, this is a huge praise from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the Holy Prophet. Allah is explaining the character of this man to everybody else. The Holy Prophet knows there are people who are going to act. They are hypocrites. They are munafiqeen. They have weak faith and they are going to be disruptive. But the Holy Prophet is too merciful. He doesn't want these people to go to hell so long as there is any hope for them to be guided. So when they come and tell the Holy Prophet, can you forgive us? We don't want to come in this battle with you. We have this excuse and that excuse. And the Holy Prophet tells them, yes, I have uh, I've excused you. You don't need to participate in this. The Holy Prophet knows. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes and tells them, Why did you give them permission not to participate? Because he's forgiving, because he's merciful. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to show them, in reality you're more deserving of punishment, but this man is protecting you. This prophet of yours keeps protecting you. He plays that role, the mercy role, the compassionate role. Other verses here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the prophet, you make things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made lawful to you, you make them unlawful to you just to please one of your wives or some of your wives. Because one of them told him, you know, I don't like the smell of something or I may not like a behavior that you did. So the Holy Prophet says, this is forbidden to me forever. Again, how can someone take that and spin it in a way to say this is a sin or that he's disobeying Allah? The Quran is saying, this is the kind of character, of moral trait that this man has. With all his superiority and purity and proximity to Allah. This is his rank and this is your rank and yet he is going to act in a way to please you. He acts in a way so that everybody is happy even though it means he sacrifices some of his enjoyment or some of his pleasures. He considers that secondary. There are things more important. So these verses not only are they not showing that the Holy Prophet is not sinning, they're actually praising the Holy Prophet. And there are many others. For instance, uh, uh, we have it here, or 
uh, are you, sorry, there's a word missing here, are you perhaps tormenting yourself with grief that they do not become believers? Allah is telling him, the Holy Prophet is torturing himself, tormenting himself, that these people are not becoming, this is not blame. No one can turn that into a sin from the Holy Prophet, saying the Quran is blaming the Holy Prophet. It's, it's praise of the Holy Prophet for how much he cares for his people. And of course, again, Taha, we have not sent down the Quran to you so that you distress yourself. And they say, when these verse, verse after verse, when they would be revealed to the Holy Prophet, he craves even more, he worships even more. And we have a lot of narrations to the point where his feet would get swollen and, and, and. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed these verses to tell him, you know, take it easier. We're not revealing all of this to you so that you torture yourself with worship. Okay, but the Holy Prophet would always say when he was told, do you not want me to be a grateful servant? Okay. Uh, I think I'm going to stop here. Uh, How many objections are left? We're done. This is the 10th one. The lesson is actually done. I wanted to, to finish with maybe one minute very quickly. I'll just read the beginning of it because I mentioned it a couple of times. I said that there are a number of narrations that go through the uh, these kinds of objections specifically related to the infallibility of the Holy Prophets. So I mentioned earlier, I think two lessons ago, I said there are a couple that are to be found in a book called Ayun Akhbar al-Rida, and it's found in other ones, Ihtijaj and other ones, but I'm reading it from here and I'm not, it's, they're very long, I would need another 10-15 minutes to go through them. I thought I would just read the very beginning of it. So if you have access to this book, Ayun Akhbar al-Rida, you know, the translation is so-so, it's not great, uh, but it's in English. Uh, of Sheikh al-Saduq. So basically chapter 14. So each one of these is one long narration, one long hadith that we have from Imam al-Rada So chapter 14 in that book, uh, I'm just going to read the title as it's written here. Uh, and this is you know, a translation of the Arabic, chapter 14, Ayyul Akhbar al-Rada. Another session of al-Rada and al-Ma'moon along with people from different nations and you know they translated it here as rhetoricians. It's actually scholars from other faiths. Uh, faiths. Uh, in Arabic, and al-Ma'mun ma'ahl So basically, these are the scholars of other faiths coming from other belief systems. Okay, as well as Imam al-Rida answers to Muhammad ibn al-Jahm, which is very famous. This very long tradition uh, regarding the immaculateness of the prophets, the infallibility of the prophets. So I'll just read the beginning, just to give you the tone of it, so that you understand. So after we have the chain, uh, he says, when Al-Ma'moon gathered together, again, the rhetoricians, uh, and men and, uh, of religions from the Jews, Christians, Magi, and Sabians, and other scholars around Ali bin Musa Rida, each person stood up to ask a question, got a firm answer, and received such an answer that he got quiet as if they had put a stone in his mouth. Then Ali ibn Muhammad ibn al-Jahm, which a famous scholar in his time, stood up and asked, O son of the Prophet of God, do you believe in the immaculateness or the infallibility of the prophets? Yes, replied the Imam. He said, then what do you have to say about the following verses? What do you have to say about what the exalted God says? Thus did Adam disobey his Lord and allow himself to be seduced. And what about the exalted God when he says, and remember the noon when he departed in wrath, and so on and so forth. And what do you have to say about when God says, uh, Joseph, uh, and with passion did she desire him, and he would have desired her. Uh, and when he says about David, and so on and so forth. 
So he mentions many of the verses that we mentioned and many that we did not mention. And then you have how Imam al responds to each and every one of them. So this is uh, chapter 14. As I said, I, I had uh, identified some passages that uh, we don't have time to read now. And then chapter 15, another long narration, another long tradition in the same vein exactly. But this one is not with Al-Jahm. This one, or Ibn al-Jahm, this one is chapter 15, another session with Ar-Rida and Al-Ma'mun. So this is Al-Ma'mun himself, the Khalifa in his time, the son of Al-Rashid. Al-Ma'mun, who was asking the Imam, objecting. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this about Adam, says this about Yusuf, says this about the Holy Prophet. How can they be infallible? And Imam Rida answers question after question. And then at the very end, uh, at the very, very end of of this one, I just want to see if I identified here or not. At the very end, he says, Al-Ma'mun said, O son of the messenger of God, you have called me down and clarified what I had doubts about. May God reward you well on behalf of his prophets and Islam. And then Ali ibn Muhammad ibn al-Jahm, who was in attendance, added, Then Al-Ma'mun stood from his prayer. He took Muhammad ibn Ja'far ibn Muhammad's hand, who was the uncle of the Imam, was present in that meeting and took him out along with the Imam al-Ma'mun asked him how did you find your nephew Muhammad ibn Ja'far Muhammad said he is a scholar but I have never seen him associate with any of the men of knowledge before so basically he's saying he has knowledge but he's never learned that knowledge from anyone so he's implying that the Imam has knowledge but this is divine knowledge that the Imam is using to answer you al-Ma'mun said surely your nephew is from among the household of the Prophet about whom the Prophet has said, Verily the pious ones of my family and the good ones of my offspring are the most forbearing of the people when they are young and the most knowledgeable of the people when they are old. Therefore do not teach them, for they are more learned than you are. They do not bring you out of guidance, nor do they make you enter a door of loss. Then Ar-Riba went home the following morning. I went to his house. So this is the narrator. And I told him about what Al-Ma'mun has said and the answers of his uncle, Muhammad ibn Ja'far. Then Ar-Rida smiled, smiled and said, Son of Al-Jahm, do not be fooled by what you heard. Al-Ma'mun will kill me and the sublime God will take my revenge against him. Okay, so this is, these are chapter 14 and 15 of Ayun, Akhbar Ar-Rida. There are long traditions. Maybe if we have time, we'll read it in the next time or some passages. But in short, a lot of what we said, a lot. There's not perfect overlap. But a lot of what we said, we can find hints or clear indications of it to uh, what is mentioned here. But it goes, there is, it goes beyond. So there are mentions of other prophets. We didn't talk about Dawood We didn't talk about Yunus and other instances of the Holy Prophet. So with that, we have finished this lesson. Inshallah, we will continue with the series. Uh, and I believe the next topic is going to be about the miracles of the prophets. And it's supposed to be in a couple of lessons. So stay tuned for that. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى اله الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وعلى محمد okay inshallah we're going to take a question from the sister and then a question from Hassan and we'll end like this any questions there's a topic that came up uh, last week, not here, someone else, and I'm curious as to how you would answer it. You see how the Prophet here is being described out of his love for 
this devil man that he's forgiving and he's tormenting himself and uh, he's so upset there that they're sinning and possibly going to be punished. So the question that was asked was, if the Prophet behaves this way, then why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, knowing that A, B, and C and whoever else is going to commit sin and go to hell, why doesn't he show that equal concern or more concern for his creation that he knows that are going to hell, even though it's done through their free will? So I'm curious as to how you would answer that question. Is your question clear? The question is clear. Uh, so it all depends how we understand how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala manages the affairs of this world. We believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created the, all the conditions for these people to become believers. Mm. And the biggest one is having sent the Holy Prophet to them. Mm. So the Holy Prophet, being who he is, being chosen by Allah for this mission, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows this mercy, knows who he sent to his people. You can't detach the mercy of the Prophet from Allah. Otherwise, you're going to say the Prophet is disobeying. He's going too far. He's not going beyond. He is the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The other way, I think, is, is a complete detachment. So you're saying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would use some other means. And we, he would show more mercy to the people than the Holy Prophet. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala manages the affairs of the world through cause and effect. And the cause and effect that he has given these people, uh, in addition to everything else, those people specifically are the Holy Prophet, or the Imams, let's say. That's it. This is all the chances you get. This is, I'm being fair and more. I'm using grace, and we talked about divine grace. I'm using lutf. That's all the lutf you get. It's a good question. Thanks.